0: Man, hasn't God been gracious to make a way for us to come to him and to know him, to be made righteous, to be made holy, to come into his presence? What an incredible blessing that is. Open, if you would, this morning, please, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and also John 18. Those are kind of the two places we're going to be the most. And so, Matthew 26, John chapter 18 as we are in part three of this series, this short series called To the Cross and Back. To the Cross and Back. Here's what we have on tap today. Our theology is this. Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father and for His glory. Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father and for His glory. Our application today is this. Christ set an example of obedience for us. Christ set an example of obedience for us. And our prayer today is... God draws to a place of doing all things for your glory. Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father and for His glory. I think a lot of times we think of the the cross as uh, this implement of shame, and there was definitely shame involved in it. There was definitely shame as part of it. But uh, the the cross, Jesus going to the cross, He did so. Because the Father loved us, and Christ loved the Father. The Bible tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5. Of course, you know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's love for us caused, us, caused God to send his Son to die for us, and Christ went to the cross to glorify and obey his father. I want to read a couple of things here. We, we were a couple of weeks ago in uh, the Last Supper, and then last week we were Jesus praying for unity in the church. And now pick up with me, if you would this morning in Matthew 26. I'm going to begin in verse 47. Jesus has just finished praying. He's talking to the disciples. And he says, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus uh, took out his hand, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must be this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. And then he and his disciples Uh, Then all of his disciples left him and fled. So here's Jesus. The parallel text in in John, I I find kind of funny. Uh, But in John, when the soldiers, the Bible tells us a little more information in John, there was about 400 people who came out to arrest Jesus. They had swords and clubs. Jesus initially says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus uh, of Nazareth. And he goes, you found him. And the Bible says that the 400 soldiers fell back, you know, like drew back and fell to the ground. And I just find that a really funny kind of thing. Uh, Maybe not funny haha, but again, I told you that my humor is weird. And so here's Jesus on the night that he's going to be arrested. The, The soldiers are coming to arrest him and he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus the Nazareth. He goes, you got him. And they don't bow down in worship. They don't, you know, like mob attack him, you know, and like tackle him to the ground. They all just fall backwards, fall to the ground. Why? Because They're in the very presence of God, and even though they don't care that he's God or believe that he is God, the fact that he is God still impacts them enough that a whole squad of soldiers just falls to the ground, and I just think that's funny, and then I think it's funny that they're able to get back up and kind of dust themselves off, you know, like collect themselves and still with their swords and their torches come and arrest him, right? So Judas says, the guy that I kiss, that's the one. And so he comes up and he kisses Jesus and they come to arrest him. And then listen to what Jesus says, because Peter, it doesn't tell us this in Matthew, it tells us in one of the other gospels, that it's Peter who draws the sword and cuts off the servant's ear, right? Jesus puts it back on. Okay. Spoilers in case you didn't know that part. Jesus puts the guy's ear back on, but uh, Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away. He goes, don't you think that I could call right now to my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to come and rescue me from this moment. But how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it has to happen this way? How would the scripture be made complete that says this is the way that the Messiah has got to die? He says that twice in this text. At the end of this text, he says, you've come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. But day after day, I was sitting in the temple and you didn't seize me there. Like day after day, basically, I've been in your presence. You've had every opportunity to arrest me, Jesus says. But all of this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets could be fulfilled. I I, I need us to comprehend this, that every aspect of Jesus' birth uh from from being born of a virgin to where he was born in bethlehem to where he was where his parents fled to egypt with him and then they came back and raised him in nazareth in the region of galilee and and the miracles that he did and now the kind of death that he would die and then not only the kind of death he would die but the kind of resurrection he would have two weeks from now we'll talk about that all of this was done according to the scriptures Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writers were writing about the coming savior. The Bible tells us in, in, in Peter that the, the prophets, as they were writing these things about the coming savior, they knew that they were writing about the coming savior. And it says, they asked the spirit within them, when are these things going to take place? They knew that the Savior was coming. They knew that the Savior was going to die. They knew that the Savior would be betrayed uh, by someone in his inner circle. That's from, from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. They knew that that he would that he would be crucified. We see that in Isaiah chapter 53, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Every single thing, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, every single thing that Jesus did, he did to fulfill the scripture in obedience to the Father and for the glory of the Father, every bit of it, all of it. And in this moment, in this moment, if he wanted to stop it, all he has to do is go, Father, need some help. And 12 legions of angels are there, 400 guys, they're not falling down now. They're dispatched. They're done, right? In this moment, but in that moment, if he does that, he's disobeying the father and salvation doesn't come and the scripture isn't fulfilled. And so what does Christ say? No, no, no. Peter, put the sword back up, man. This is exactly how it's supposed to take place. This is what's supposed to happen. In Luke 22, a parallel text, if you're a note taker, Luke 22, 53, Jesus says this, talking about this arrest. He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's saying that to the people who are arresting him. He could have escaped this situation. He could have been done with this situation. But he says, no, this is your hour. This is the power of darkness. Jesus is going to end up uh, in front of Pilate. He ends up, they arrest him. They put him through several different trials that night. Flip over a page. You might not need to flip over a page, actually, but look uh, look at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57, right where we left off a second ago. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end of the matter. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. You get that, right? This is not a fair trial. Jesus is in front of Caiaphas. They're looking for anybody who will lie about Jesus so they have a reason to put him to death. They're asking for people to voluntarily lie against this guy so they have a reason to put him to death. But they found none. Verse 60, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. By the way, when Jesus did say that, we see that recorded for us in John 2. When Jesus said, I'm able to destroy, or you're, you'll destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it, he was talking about his death and his resurrection. Now, what was crazy about it, right, is he's standing in the presence of the temple, and, and here's what's nuts, because they missed it. The disciples wouldn't even get this until after he'd been raised from the dead. So what what they missed was this. He's standing in the presence of the temple. He goes, man, he goes, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it back up. In three days, I'll build it back. In three days, it'll come back. And because he's standing in the earthly temple, they think he's talking about the earthly temple, but he's kind of like, this temple, the temple of my body, right? And what's crazy in that moment it, it, and, and they don't get it. The disciples won't get it until the Holy Spirit fills them in acts, and then all things kind of click in their brain. But here's what's crazy about it. In that moment, Jesus just said, this temple that we're standing in has no value. This temple of my body, Jesus says, is all the value. This is the thing that's good, and this is the thing that's holy. You destroy this temple, but watch, in three days it'll come back. Again, spoilers for two weeks when we talk about his resurrection, right? But like, and so, So a couple of guys come up, and they're calling back to the beginning of his ministry, and they're like, this guy said he could destroy God's temple and in three days build it back. And what's funny is they're like, that'll do. That's good enough. Let's put him to death. They're looking for false information, and and what they decide on, he's claimed to be God. He's been raising the dead, and what they decide is, is enough, right, is Hey, because what they say is it took 46 years to build this temple, and you think you can build it in three days? That's what they decide is enough to put him to death over, that he said he could build a temple in three days. Of course, they're ignorant. They don't understand the temple he's talking about. Verse 62, the priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, You've said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds with glory. Listen, a couple of things, because here in a minute, when he's in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, uh brings charges against him, Jesus is silent as well. Jesus doesn't need to defend himself. He doesn't need to say anything about it, like say whatever you want. And so finally the high priest goes, I adjure you, I command you, tell us, tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? He goes, you've said so. And he goes, I got something else for you. Pretty soon you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And they're like, that's it, man. And the the priest rips his robe, which was terrible thing for the priest to do, according to the Levitical law, and he rips his robe, and he's angry, and he goes, what more do we need? This is enough. Let's put him to death. Jesus is just like chill, right? Like, I don't know. Is it appropriate to say that about Jesus? I'm going to say so. I've already said it. It's already out of my mouth. Jesus is just like, mm. now, the, the, idea being, the idea being that in, in this kind of Roman court of law, they would give you a chance to defend yourself, and it's important that Jesus doesn't, It's important that when they're bringing these charges against them, he's just sitting there silent. It's him basically saying, they say, are you saying you're God? And he doesn't say a word, which is more powerful than if he goes, yes, I am God. Because he's just like, bring it. Just say whatever. Like, yeah, that, check. Are you the son of God? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you the Messiah? Yep. Are you the king of kings? Yep. You know, his silence is confirming all these statements, and they are not cool with that, right? And he goes, let, let me top it. Pretty soon you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God in glory and in power. And they're like, oh, okay, wow, that's just too much. Not only can you rebuild a temple in three days, but now you're saying you're going to be sitting at the right hand of God. We're gonna, like, and Jesus, why? Why is he doing this? Why is he, why is he going through these things? Flip over uh, to John 19. Let's read uh, him in front of Pilate. Pilate wanted wanted to let him go. So Pilate has him flogged, has him whipped, so that maybe the Jews will be like, okay, he got beaten up pretty badly, that's enough. Maybe the Jews won't want, want to put him to death. But listen to this, John 19, beginning in verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hell, the king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So let me paint this picture for you. They've flogged him already. This is with a cat of nine tails. It's a whip that has pieces of of bone in it or, or rock in it. And they're experts at it, right? Like if you have this job, you're good at this job. And it would strike the back of Christ, and it would tear at his body and tear at his flesh. Now, after they've done that, they put a purple robe on him, and they mock him, right? So the Jewish law said you couldn't give anybody more than 40 lashes. So he gets like probably 39 lashes. Uh, You stopped at 39. Jewish tradition said you stopped at 39 in case you miscounted, right? We didn't want to give him more than 40. And and, and so they put the purple robe on him. Uh, They put the crown of thorns on his head. They give him a staff. If you put all these gospel narratives together, they give him a staff and they go around him and they're mocking and they're going, oh, hell, the king of the Jews. And they begin to spit on him and they take turns punching him in the face and going, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you that time. Tell us who hit you that time. And they're beginning to mock him. They take the staff from his hand and begin to strike him over the top of the head, where you will remember is the crown of thorns. And then after this, Pilate brings him back out in front of the people and goes, here he is what should I do with him? Verse 4, Pilate went out and again said to the people, see, I'm bringing him out to you so that you can know I find no guilt in him. Just catch that for a minute. His back has been flayed. His face has been bruised. His head has been pierced. He's been spit upon. Yeah, this guy's innocent. Catch that. Catch the injustice, right? But what is Jesus already said? This is the hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Christ had been turned over, according to Acts 2, into the hands of wicked men. By Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, says that God, according to his foreknowledge, handed Christ over into the hands of wicked men, right? For their hour and their power of darkness. And he's done all of that, and he goes, here's this innocent guy, this bloody, swollen, bruised, innocent guy. Why? For the glory of the Father and obedience to the Father, right? Any moment, any moment, Christ could have said, Father, enough. And 12 legions of angels are there. See, now I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no fault in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him, and they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. Catch this. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I should also let you know that Pilate has, his wife has been up all night because she couldn't sleep because every time she went to sleep, she had nightmares about Jesus. And she came to her husband, Pilate, and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Pilate is getting it from all sides. Like, man, this guy is righteous. Man, this guy is innocent. Man, this guy is saying he's God. Oh my goodness. Pilate's having some problems now, right? When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? I love this kind of scenario, right? Jesus in front of the crowd. Here he is. Here's the man. Take him away and crucify him yourself. No, no, no. We have a law. That guy called himself God. He deserves to die. And Pilate brings him into the inner chamber and goes, where are you from again? Like, can you, like, can you imagine this scenario, right? This, this heaviness in Pilate. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Where did you say you were from? And Jesus doesn't answer. Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. God had orchestrated this. And Christ, for the glory of the Father, And in obedience to the Father, said, your will be done. Your will be done. One of my favorite passages that if you've been here for a little while, you've doubtless heard me mention is John 12. And in John 12, it's the night uh, before Christ is arrested. And in John 12, verse 27, Jesus says this, Uh, Father, my heart is troubled, but what should I say? Save me from this hour. So this is about a day before he's crucified. My heart is troubled, but what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very reason that I have come to this hour. Instead, Father, glorify your name. And God speaks from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. Christ says, man, my heart is heavy about the suffering I'm about to bear. My heart is heavy over the suffering I'm about to endure. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. What should I say? Father, send 12 legions of angels. No, no. How could the scriptures be fulfilled if I pass this? How, how, how How could this stuff be complete if I, God, for your glory. And God goes, oh, man, it's for my glory. See, we we think that God was ashamed of the cross, that God was, man, the cross glorified God. The cross glorified God. We have the wrong view, I think, oftentimes of Jesus. Did you know that the Old Testament sacrifices of which Jesus is a, those things foreshadowed Christ. Did you know what the Bible says about the Old Testament sacrifices? It says that God was pleased in them and he delighted in them and they were a fragrant offering to him. Jesus is, this is pleasing to God. And so Jesus goes, man, for your glory, God, for your glory, Father, in obedience to you. Now, what do we learn from this? Our application is this, and it's not super exciting. Christ set an example of obedience for us, and why is that not super exciting? Because the example he set resulted in his death. We're pretty content We're pretty content, uh, and this isn't a a pick on any of you in here. I'm just speaking about myself mostly. It's really easy as a person, as a human who who tends towards pride and tends towards self-centeredness, and that's just kind of the human way, right? It's pretty easy for us to take the things of Christ and use them if they benefit us, right? I'm forgiven. True. That's a great thing, but very seldom is it about man because i 'm forgiven, I want to forgive you usually it's i 'm forgiven by God, you better forgive me that 's usually kind of that, how that goes right right we 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 tend to take the th- take the things of Christ and we go i 'm under god 's grace i 'm under god 's mercy, and we demand that people treat us with grace and mercy, and yet we tend maybe not to be as gracious and merciful to others <laughs> like it, we tend to like and And here Jesus is setting an example for us, an example that had him at the end of his life being handed over into the hands of wicked men for their hour and their power of darkness so that he was cast down at the hands of wicked men. Why? For our redemption and as an example of obedience. Don't miss this. This is from Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, maybe 1 through 4. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and that's everybody in chapter 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's really key. We should talk about that at some point. Uh, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Remember what he told the guys? They're like, who are you? Who are you? Are you the son of God? He goes, it is as you say. And he goes, and let me tell you what you're going to see. You're going to see the son of God seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Consider him, the Bible says in the next verse in Hebrews 12, consider Jesus who endured such hostility against himself at the hands of wicked men so that, and here it is, so that you will not grow faint-hearted for you haven't resisted your sin yet to the point of shedding your blood. Catch what it's saying. Jesus resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Jesus resisted sin and temptation to the point of shedding the blood. He was obedient to the Father such that it cast him into the hands of wicked men. And what we are supposed to do is look at how Jesus endured the cross so that we would be encouraged when we also are in the hands of wicked men, when we also are resisting our sin, when we also are suffering, we should count it all joy because Christ set the example for us. Hebrews 13, which happens to be the next chapter, because Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 13 and math and order and numbers and stuff, right? Hebrews 13 says that Christ suffered as a sacrifice outside the gate. Now, that might not make a lot of sense to you, but There were parts in the Levitical law of the sacrifices that were put on the altar, and then there were parts of the Levitical sacrifice that were considered dirty, and they were cast outside the gate, and you had to wash yourself. And it says, look, they crucified Jesus outside the gate like a profane thing. That's what it's saying. They crucified Jesus outside the gate like he was profane. And then the author of Hebrews says, let us also go outside the gate and bear the same shame he bore. Not shame from God. Not shame from God. Obedience to God, where? Shame from men. Let people call us fools. Let people think us shamed. Let people think us small. It's the same shame Christ bore. Let's bear the the shame that Christ bore. Let's Let's walk the path that he walked. Let's walk in a path of obedience and say, look, if it costs me my life, it's yours, God, for your glory. If it costs me my reputation, it's yours, God, for your glory. I mentioned this text last week. Let me start with this. Sorry. Two other texts before I go to this last one. John 14, 13, the last night of the life of Christ as he's praying in the garden. John 14, 13, Jesus says this. I do as the Father has commanded me. Check this out so the world will know that I love the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. Now, this is John 14, verse 31. What Jesus has just said, okay, in John 14, verse 15, John 14, verse 21, and John 14, verse 23, what Jesus has just said Is if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you obey me. If you love me, you serve me. Right? And he says, and I want you to know, I obey the Father, so the world will know I love Him. Christ set for us an example of obedience. What does that obedience? What does the obedience of Christ demonstrate that He loves the Father? What does our obedience demonstrate that we love the Father? Christ is our example in that even if it cost us everything. We think of the cross. There was suffering there, yes. There was shame there, certainly, but from the, the people who cast shame upon Christ. Romans 5.19 says, uh, through one man's trespass, that's Adam, all will become sinners by one man's obedience, that's Jesus' obedience on the cross, many will be made righteous. Christ going to the cross was an obedience to the Father. And then in Luke 22, on the last night of the life of Christ, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times he said, Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way to remove this cup from me, if there's any other way, then so be it, but not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Three times. Why? Because the scripture had to be fulfilled. The father had to be glorified. The father had to be obeyed. He could have called down the 12 legions of angels. God, if there's another way, let's do it. But if not, I'm here. Man, what an example of suffering. What an example of suffering. The end of 1 Peter 3 and the beginning of 1 Peter 4 says that Christ suffered on the cross, so that he would be done with sin, setting for us an example so that we also would be done with sin. Don't, don't miss the fact that the cross is an invitation. The cross is an invitation to join Christ. Suffering unjustly for the glory of the Father, being done with sin, putting to death who we were, right? Right? Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It, Paul doesn't say Christ was crucified for me so that I, like, I don't have to die He says, Christ was crucified, and I was crucified with him. Paul says in Romans 6, I have died with Christ. Jesus says in the Gospels, and we miss this, if you want to be one of my disciples, come up after me, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus' invitation is to the cross, to suffer like he did, to be done with sin like he was, to, to, to... Suffer at the hands of wicked men. And Paul says in Philippians 2, and I used this text last week, and I'm using it this week, and there's a really great chance you're going to hear it again next week, okay? But Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this Attitude or have this heart in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be chaste. But he made himself nothing, taking on the likeness of mankind, being found in the likeness of a servant. He became obedient to God to the point of death. Yes, even death on the cross. Therefore, why? Because of the obedience. Because of the obedience. Because he submitted to the Father, because he went to the cross, therefore God was pleased to exalt him and give him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Have that attitude in yourself, Paul says. That you would have no regard for yourself, but you would have regard for others and that you would submit yourself in obedience To the Father, even to the point of death. Oh man, Christian, I am telling you, I was getting excited about preaching this one this morning because this is so key. We have been invited to the cross. we look to the cross as our redemption. We look to the cross as as the absolution of our sins. We look to the cross and the empty tomb as the promise and hope of eternal life. And we look to the cross as an example of how diligently and faithfully we will submit ourselves to the Father. And people go, man, how do you do it? How do you stay steadfast for Jesus? And we we think back to Hebrews 12 that I mentioned just a moment ago, and we say because we have fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we will not lose heart. How do you face these trials? My eyes are on the cross of Christ. How do you get up and put your feet on the ground day after day after day? My affection is set on Jesus. How do you endure being treated so unjustly at the hands of wicked men? Because I want to glorify the Father. I wish we had another 30 minutes. We just don't. Uh, come back for the second one and hear it again. Listen. there are a, there are different pieces of knowledge different types of truth and this is just me making this up okay so like don't put a lot of stock in this I, in my head there are things that are just facts and i treat them very clinically they're just facts there's just information in my head there are things that i find funny that make me chuckle almost every time I think of them. I have 876 inside jokes with Michelle. The number 876 is one of those. And so it's... it's uh, and then there are things like this. And, and some of you who know me really well are going to get this right away. Some of you are going to think, man, this guy's a dork, and I'm okay with that. And some of you are going to catch it pretty quickly. But then there are things like this that for me... And I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to step on the gospel at all. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you. There are things like this that do for me what the 45-minute training sequence of Rocky IV, (laughs) when I was 10 years old and saw it in the theater for the first time. I could go with my mom and my sister to watch 101 Dalmatians, or I could go with my dad to watch Rocky IV. And that 45-minute training sequence of Rocky in the mountains, and you're just like, and at the end, he runs up on top of the mountain, and he gets up there, and he draws, and like, he's just, ah, oh, like, there are things like this, there are truths like this that just make me want to just go, you know, and just like, ah, oh, you know, like, ah, oh. and what I want, what I want is for this truth, to move from a place where it's quizzical to you to a place where it's factual to you to a place where it's Rocky Ford training sequence and you're ready to run the mountains, you know, like in waist-deep snow, like, and just go, my God is this big and this good and this mighty and this glorious, and I submit myself to him. Why? Because Christ has set for me the example. Ha! <sighs> like, <sighs> I also slept really well last night, so <sighs> here's our prayer today. I'm gonna have to change shirts, I'm getting sweaty. <sighs> here's our prayer today. God draw us to a place of doing all things for your glory. God draw us to a place of doing all things for your for your glory. The song that we're about to sing is one of my absolute favorites that Micah has ever written. Which means this. It means that you're, you're not going to know it yet because we haven't sung it in here yet. And, and here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to, I want you to focus on the words. Now, if you're able to sing the words and focus on them, great. If you need to just focus on the words, do that. But I want you to hear, based on what we just read, what we're about, about to proclaim to one another. This, this is a proclamation that we are singing and proclaiming to one another, that we have been beckoned to the cross to join Christ in his suffering, and his death, for the Father's glory. Lord God, As we sing this, as we proclaim this, draw us into a place where we delight in you and we delight in your glory and we delight to be your servants and we seek Christ's face and we submit to you in all things.